Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Right around now, I think, as I record this, is when I would have been landing in Berlin to help put the finishing touches on the preparation for the AJC Global Forum. Then the pandemic changed everyone's plans. I am so sad to not be in Germany right now, but thrilled and proud that AJC has been able to bring the amazing content that we would have had at the Global Forum online. Go to AJC.org slash Global Forum to register right now for our virtual Global Forum programming taking place Sunday through Thursday. It is not to be missed. Now, joining us to talk about the importance of this year's virtual global forum and what we can expect from the program is AJC CEO, David Harris. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Sefi. Now, the global forum was meant to be in Germany. What would have been the significance of physically being there? Well, I think I can say safely that it would have been historic, and that's no hyperbole. Uh, Germans themselves were saying that this would have been something entirely new, the largest um, advocacy gathering by a Jewish organization in post-war Germany. And Chancellor Merkel herself uh, had briefed the entire cabinet of Germany on the importance of the AJC conference coming to Berlin. And in fact, this week, many of us, myself included, were supposed to be on planes headed for Berlin. And... um, the preparation and the opening of the Global Forum. Now, thanks to the pandemic, we're not going to be in Germany, but we're making lemonade out of lemons. And instead of being in Germany, we're going to be everywhere, uh, virtually. But are there any elements, any kind of special Germany-centric elements of the program that we had planned that we're going to be keeping for our virtual Global Forum? The answer is yes. We're keeping the fact that Angela Merkel uh, is confirmed to speak at the opening session. There will be other um, leaders from Germany who will be sprinkled throughout the five days. And we will also be having a very moving segment, actually that precedes Angela Merkel in the opening session of a number of AJC members of the survivor generation, the children of the survivor generation and the grandchildren who will be explaining in brief their, their family stories and why that has motivated them to engage with AJC and want so much to have been in Germany in order to pay tribute and honor to the past, even as they talk about the kind of future that we're all seeking to build. That sounds like an extremely powerful element, David, the survivors and children of survivors. And of course, Chancellor Merkel speaking, uh, she's no stranger to AJC. This would be at least the third time, I think, that she would be addressing the Global Forum. So she is no stranger at all. Uh, We have met her on many occasions. We have met her privately in her office. We have met her in her larger conference room. And I think most memorably, Sefi, in 2006, we were celebrating the 100th anniversary of AJC. We were founded in 1906. And we had on that dais, I think, the single most impressive group of world leaders ever assembled by any Jewish organization. Sitting on that dais were the President of the United States, George W. Bush, the Secretary General of the United Nations, 
Kofi Annan, and the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. And here's the funny part of the story. We had about 2,700 people crammed into the National Building Museum in Washington for this gala dinner. And after our dignitaries left, I kind of positioned myself at the exit, or one of the exits, to say goodbye to people, sort of pick up the buzz of the evening. And I'd say, you know, half the people I say goodbye to said, why did you invite the President of the United States? I didn't vote for him. <laughs> and half the people said, why did you invite the UN Secretary General? The UN is an irredeemably <laughs> anti-Zionist, anti-Israel organization. And 100% of the people said, thank you for inviting Angela Merkel. What a breath of fresh air. <laughs> so it kind of shows you that you know, history can move on and, and go in sort of unexpected directions. But from the beginning, she struck a chord with AJC. She understands the imperatives of history. She has affirmed repeatedly the special relationship with Israel. Uh, she's been strong in denouncing anti-Semitism. Uh, she's been a friend. And I think that'll be reflected in her comments at this AJC virtual global forum coming up. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you have a fellow admirer of Chancellor Merkel in me, David. Of course, I'll just say, you know, thinking back on 2006, I mean, that must have been an, an incredible sight. But we at AJC are, are not ones to to rest on our history where we're always, you know, trying to keep playing in those leagues and top what we've done in the past. And with an eye toward that, I want to talk about a few other of the guests who we'll be having with us this year in 2020 at our virtual global forum. So last year, AJC got a lot of media attention when we signed an agreement with the Muslim World League, perhaps the most important Muslim organization in the world. And then in January of this year, and I can't believe I just said those words because in my mind, it feels like it must have been five years ago. But five months ago, Mohammed Alisa, the secretary general of the Muslim World League, flew from Mecca to Poland to tour Auschwitz by your side, David. And he was to have joined us again in Berlin. And I believe that Dr. Alisa will be with us next week virtually. Isn't that right? And can you tell us a bit about the significance of that relationship and of Dr. Alisa's virtual presence with us? Absolutely, Seth. You know, you got it exactly right. We signed a memorandum of understanding in New York uh, in front of the media, including the Arab media. The first element of that MOU was the joint trip to Auschwitz to mark the 75th anniversary of the camp's liberation in January. He, in turn, assembled a delegation of 62 Muslim leaders from around the world who accompanied him and us. This was the highest-ranking Muslim delegation ever, I repeat, ever, not just division Auschwitz, but any Nazi death camp. Now, for those who know that in some parts of the world, the Holocaust is diminished, uh, trivialized, dismissed, the fact that these leaders from a host of countries came publicly, and the media was all over this story, Sefi. I think the New York Times alone had several stories, not to mention all the other major papers in the United States and in the Arab world. Um, amazing. The second step, as you suggested, was he would come to the Global Forum, which, by the way, was timed to, co to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of the war and the end of the Holocaust. He was coming with us to Sachsenhausen, the Nazi concentration camp on the outskirts of Berlin, where we were going to have our opening event for remembrance. He was going to be a speaker. 
having himself wow. visited Auschwitz and Birkenau. Now, the symbolism of all of this is important. He will be in the opening session of following Angela Merkel, and that's very, very much by design. What are we saying? We're opening the session with the testimonies of the survivors, their children, and their grandchildren, which sets the stage for Angela Merkel. This was the greatest challenge of the 20th century for the Jewish people, how to grapple with the aftermath of the Holocaust and how to deal with Germany starting in 1945. Well, HAC was a leader. We were alone in seeing this as the ultimate challenge, and um, a lot has been achieved. What's our 21st century challenge? It is to write a new chapter in relations between Jews and Muslims. Mm. So if you think about the thread just of the opening session from the past to the present leadership of Angela Merkel and the special relationship between Germany, Israel, and the Jewish people to sort of the beginning of the future, which is HAC trying to chart a new history, a new pathway between the Jewish and Muslim worlds with partners like Dr. Alisa, who comes from Mecca. He doesn't come from New York or Chicago. He comes from Mecca. The office of the Muslim World League is in Mecca. This is the real deal. And what we're saying to the world is, if we could do it with Germany, obviously one circumstance, one situation, we're not drawing parallels, but no one thought it possible, Sefi. If we could do it then, this is a different challenge, but no less significant, no less challenging, no less daunting. But in the 21st century, AJC has set this as our principal goal. And that's the theme, if you will, of the opening session of the AJC Virtual Global Forum. Incredibly inspiring. I personally can't wait to tune in. This is going to be my sixth AJC Global Forum. And one thing that I remember so clearly from my first and from each one since is the AJC Great Debate, in which we have two leading thinkers debating a critical Jewish advocacy issue. You know, we've had a great debate every year since I've started at AJC. And this year, we're actually having three debates. Why is that such an important format? And what are the three topics that'll be debated on our virtual stage? It's also one of my favorite, favorite elements. And I go back just a little longer than you do. So um, <laughs> you can add a couple of digits in front <laughs> uh, of the six. But um, uh, it's always one of my favorite elements, not just because we bring two sort of brilliant people who have different points of view on important issues, but also because I think it represents HAC at its best. I mean, if you think about it, we live in a world which is increasingly siloed, intellectually, politically siloed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People don't go and look for debates. People go and look for reinforcement of their own ideas. So they choose their TV channels, they choose their websites, they choose their newspapers to such a large degree based on their desire to find kind of security and comfort in that space. Whatever their viewpoint is, what HAC is saying, wait a second, folks, we're not going in that direction. There are a lot of complex issues out there that don't have simple answers. You may think they do, but in reality, they don't. So we have three debates. One of the debates is on free speech and hate speech. Are there limits? And uh, one side of the argument by a very distinguished legal scholar, someone very well known to the public, will be there should be no limits. The answer to hate speech is not the banning of hate speech. It's more speech and counter speech. So that'd be one great debate. The second great debate, we're in 2020. Uh, <laughs> it's a presidential election uh, underway. We have top emissaries of both the Biden and Trump campaigns who will be debating foreign policy and national security. 
which way to go, the Democratic way or the Republican way. <laughs> you can be sure that it's going to be a very, shall we say, energetic debate. And the third debate we have slated is um, two views of the West Bank. As everyone knows, this has been a long-standing question in Israel with different views on what the future of the West Bank ought to look like. Uh, it's come into focus again because of the Trump peace plan. And we have two prominent Israelis who will be debating what ought the future of the West Bank to look like. What ought to be decided unilaterally? What ought to be decided in peace negotiations if they can take place? What should the future of Israel itself look like? So right there, I think we got something for everyone. And I hope people will tune in. A registration is easy. It's free. It's from your home. It's from the comfort of your couch or your desk. This is a heck of a lot easier than getting on a plane, flying to Berlin, experiencing jet lag and, and language differences. Well, yes, I will tell everyone exactly where they can sign up in just a minute. But since you mentioned Israel, we're also going to be hosting Israel's alternate prime minister, Benny Gantz, who by agreement will become Israel's prime minister toward the end of 2021. I believe this is going to be his first major appearance with an American audience since forming the government with Prime Minister Netanyahu. What in particular are you looking forward to hearing from Benny Gantz? Well, that's easy because my answer is everything. <laughs> Precisely because, as you said, this will be his first major appearance and he will be in conversation. When possible, we encourage you know, our distinguished guests to join us in conversation. If they wish to give a speech, fine, but otherwise we prefer the conversation so we can ask questions on a range of issues. And there will be a conversation that ranges across a host of issues, U.S.-Israel relations, prospects for peace, uh, how to deal with Iran, the Sunni Arab world, and the future of relations between Israel and those countries. So this will be his first opportunity to talk about these things in public in this way, and it'll be our first opportunity to get a better feel for someone who's highly respected in Israel, but because most of his life was spent in the military, he's largely unknown to people outside that military circle. Mm. I feel like we've talked about so much already, but there's lots more besides and maybe even a few surprises. Are there any last comments you want to make to whet our listeners' appetites before next week? <laughs> well, there's a lot, but I would just also mention that we have announced the Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Now, why is Greece important? Greece is important because two years ago, we honored his late father, Konstantinos Mitsotakis, who himself had been Prime Minister in 1990, when finally Greece extended full diplomatic relations to Israel and a goal that AJC had fought for for the decade before finally happened. And from that point in 1990 until today, relations between Greece and Israel, as well as Greece, Cyprus and Israel have just taken off in ways that many people cannot even imagine. And he now embodies the extraordinary energy of that relationship. He's a great friend of AJC, a great friend of the United States. He's helped turn around Greece. You remember just a few years ago, Greece was sort of the butt of jokes. You know, God forbid our economy becomes like Greece. Meanwhile, now he handled the COVID-19 crisis in a way that we can only envy. Mm. So he's part of this sort of miraculous turnaround in Greece. He also is Stanford educated, Harvard educated. So I can say that not only is his English good, it's a heck of a lot better than mine. <laughs> and I think people watching the conversation with the prime minister, and there will be a conversation as well, I think will be impressed and will learn a lot about Greece, the Eastern Mediterranean, relations with Israel, and sort of the state of European affairs today. 
Well, folks can go right now to ajc.org slash global forum or just click the link that we've put in the show notes here in your podcast app to sign up right now to receive all kinds of important reminders and, and things like that to be sure that you don't miss a minute of the AJC virtual global forum. David, thank you so much for joining us. And we're looking forward to watching you conduct some of these interviews and conversations yourself next week. Sophie, thank you. The only thing I cannot promise the viewers we would have had some good beer and some German pretzels. Uh, those we cannot offer, but the intellectual fair we can offer. And I hope to, quote, see you during our virtual global forum. There's nothing stopping people from bringing beer themselves to their computers to watch Chancellor Merkel as she uh, helps us open global forum. David, thank you so much. Bye bye, Sefi. Thank you. The coronavirus pandemic, George Floyd protests, and polarized politics have sparked a rapid rise of conspiracy theories, extremism, and hate. Journalist Jeffrey Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, recently joined us as part of Advocacy Anywhere to discuss the impact of this phenomenon on the Jewish people, the United States, journalism, and democracy. Mr. Goldberg is not a diplomat. He's a journalist, and his acerbic candor reminded me of what I miss about being in a newsroom. He did not mince words. Here's an excerpt of his conversation with AJC Europe director Simone Rodan Benzaken. I couldn't be more excited to have a good friend of AJC's and of mine, Jeffrey Goldberg, with us today, particularly at a time that can certainly be called historic for so many reasons. So, Jeff, uh, you and I first met in 2014 uh, when you wrote a cover story for the Atlantic on anti-Semitism in Europe. But I had the opportunity to witness up close what journalism is about. When I saw you on the ground um, interviewing people that probably most French journalists had never bothered to interview, go places where most French journalists probably don't go. But I remember just really being very impressed by your capacity to dig deep, to go on the ground, to investigate, to get your interlocutors to speak about things they probably had no intention of speaking about before going into the interview. And I remember just thinking, well, this is what sort of real journalism is about. So this brings me to the actual question. How has the coronavirus crisis and uh, the lockdown affected the way you do journalism? First of all, thank you for having me. And it's good to be with the American Jewish Committee, of course. It's well, it's interesting because I'm in Washington right now and all of a sudden Washington decided that the pandemic is over because we're all going outside to many people who are participating in protests. Obviously, there are many police officers and soldiers for reasons we could talk about why there's so many soldiers on the streets right now. And there are quite a lot of reporters outside all breathing on each other. So I'm sure this pandemic story will be coming back in one to two weeks. But right now, in the environment I'm in, it seems as if there is no pandemic, just protests. I say that because we have been seriously affected. Obviously, economically, journalism institutions have been affected by this, as has other businesses, pretty profoundly in a pretty serious way. But we are affected by it because we've been locked down the same way everybody else has been locked down. And journalism is, in part, an act of going outside and talking to people and going places and figuring out things with your own. As you mentioned, you can certainly write about anti-Semitism in France by surfing the net, interviewing experts like you on the phone, but it's a lot better to go to Toulouse directly, you know, and, and see what's happening. And what's so interesting about moments like these is that precisely at a time when 
people want quality journalism and more than ever, it becomes harder and harder to make for economic reasons, for logistical reasons, for every reason. And so we live inside this contradiction where precisely at a time when it's so hard to do our jobs, we have to do them more because so many more people want what we're making. You wrote a piece where you said that the conspiracy theory is actually an existential threat for our democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, we've obviously more, seen more of that during the lockdown, but can you help our audience understand why you think this really is an existential threat? Conspiracy theories, along with extremism, uh, and you know, it is extremists who generally propagate conspiracy theories, never been very, very healthy for the Jewish people throughout history, right? For all of the most obvious reasons in the world, the most successful, longest running show in the conspiracy world um, has been the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And I started my, that piece that we posted a few weeks ago, which you can find on theatlantic.com, even today. I started that piece in Egypt, actually, 20 years ago, right after, almost 20 years ago, right after 9-11. I had gone to Cairo a few days after the attacks, you know, sort of starting, you know, what turned out to be a fairly endless trip through the region. Because Egypt, more than a lot of countries, was at the time very susceptible to conspiracy thinking. This is when I met Mohammed Atta's father. Mohammed Atta was the leader of the hijackers. I met him seven days after the hijacking. And he told me he had already developed, or someone had developed for him, in a very elaborate theory about how his son was still alive, that it was the Mossad and not Al-Qaeda that had conducted the hijackings. And it was just a sign of a psychological sickness. But this was not just the father of an extremist. This was at the top levels of government, at the top levels of newspapers, all kinds of fantastical theories about how the world works. And, and what you understand very quickly about conspiracy theories is that conspiracy theories are, we're always susceptible to them. Because as human beings, we need to find coherence in a very, very complicated world. And so what conspiracy theories do is they hand you a package. And what they also allow you to do is externalize your own problems. I mean, American Jewish Committee literally been working on this for 100 years. Plus, you are not to blame for your economic situation. You are not to blame for your political situation. You are not to blame because you're a loser. It's the Jews. It's the this. It's the that. It's the other thing. You have to actually put some meat on the bone. You can't just say it's the Jews. You've got to give them theories and propaganda and, and, and all kinds of things. That's what we were finding, obviously, and still find to a great degree in Egypt, where people externalize the problems of Egypt and explain Egypt's shortcomings or governmental failures by blaming other parties. And I always had this in the back of my mind that America, because it's transparent, because it's democratic, because it's part of the Enlightenment, America always had immunities to conspiracy thinking, but now we see that we're no more or less immune to the power and seductiveness of conspiracy thinking than any other group of people on the planet. And it is an existential threat. It's an existential threat to democracy. It's an existential threat to true communication. What can be done to counter that? What can be done to fight it? Well, that's the million dollar question, right? Or the trillion dollar question, because we have been asking in the quote unquote mainstream media, we've been assuming before Donald Trump was elected, we assumed that if you just put out true information or fact-checked information or however you want to frame it, that people react to it by going, huh, well, that sounds true. I will therefore make decisions about who I support, where I live, what I do, how I believe accordingly. But, you know, in our country, I mean, you have this in France, certainly Europe is very susceptible to this historically and today. You have groups of people who have built or have had built for them alternative information ecosystems that are very, very closed, that explain everything you need explained to you in order to get yourself through the day. It is not as if the 
numerical, that the majority of Americans believe in these things, but an awful lot of people do, and they have the ability to sway elections, among other things. So the hardest thing in the world is how do I convince people who believe X that is not true? How do I convince them that they're just wrong without angering them and seeming condescending and without, you know, seeming contemptuous of them? It's a very, very hard line to walk. So to move on to a slightly different topic, but it, that is obviously related. Last year, you had an issue, a special issue, again, for The Atlantic called How to Stop Civil War. Right. And given the current context, and at least from where I sit on this part of the Atlantic, watching the news and hearing from my colleagues and friends, this obviously resonates quite a bit. How dangerous do you think the situation currently is yeah. in the United States? Well, can I ask you a question based on what you're watching? Sorry. You always do this. <laughs> professional hazard. From where you're sitting, what do you see happening here? Does it seem like all American cities are on fire or something? It's probably um, what it seemed to you like when you watched the news looking at the yellow vest yeah. movement in France. Uh, you probably had the impression that in the entire country was in fire, which to some extent wasn't entirely wrong, and that some sort of very strong boiling issues were coming to the surface. Right. No, I mean, because we have the same problem where, you know, there was an anchor on one of the networks said, Washington is burning. And they were showing the picture of a, the bathroom in Lafayette Square that was burning. But <laughs> the rest of Washington wasn't burning, right? I mean, there was looting, there were bad things going on, but you can create the impression of, of chaos by focusing narrowly on the violent events that are actually very localized. If I'm not only speaking about the, the violence itself, I, what I mean more largely is the issue that you addressed in the piece last year on how to stop civil war, which basically came from the idea that there is a danger of civil war. Right, right. I mean, civil war always exists in the back of the American mind as a not probable, but more than theoretical possibility, because it did actually happen once, right? And the country thought after the actual civil war that we were going to be permanently unified. But Americans today seem less unified than ever. I mean, I want to be I want to be very careful and say that no one who wrote in that special issue thinks that an actual civil war in the 1861 meaning of civil war is going to happen. But there is this kind of widespread fracturing where people are not only retreating to different bubbles, but there's active hostility between or among different subsets and different groups. Demography is forcing the United States to try to figure out how to be the first truly peaceful multi-ethnic democracy. We're moving from a majority white country to a majority non-white country. And so this is a live experiment in how you do that. And it's very interesting because I always have this in mind. It's something I asked Jim Mattis once when he was, actually it was even before he was Secretary of Defense, what's the biggest threat facing the United States today? And, and Jim Mattis said a couple of years ago, a few years ago, the biggest challenge for America, and I was expecting Iran, Russia, Russian disinformation, China, whatever. He said, the biggest challenge for America is that uh, we don't seem to like each other very much anymore. And you know, he's, this is a man, 50 years in the national security complex, uh, I take it seriously when he says that. He said, if there's no unity among the people, you can have a great army. And we're seeing this manifest itself today if people who are watching. You could have a great army, but that won't protect you from the forces inside that are trying to pull everyone apart. 
And it's hard to see people understanding what the other person is going through. I mean, that's what a lot of these protests are about, is an African-American community that looks at white America and says, you really just don't understand what it's like to walk down the street in America as a black person. And then you have white reaction to this. This is why we toggled back and forth between very different kinds of presidents. We're in a bit of a jam right now. We at AJC, we believe in a strong center a zone of compromise, a zone of potential right. consensus. Do you think that's still possible? Or, or as you just described, are there too many divisions? Are there too many forces pulling the country yeah. apart? I don't know if there are too many divisions. There are too many forces that benefit from division. You know, when we introduced television cameras into the House and the Senate 20 some odd years ago, however long it was, probably longer than that, you know, we thought that that would be an advancement for democracy. But what happened is legislators started performing for home audiences, putting on shows of their ideological purity. Compromise used to be a positive value on Capitol Hill. Now it's a negative value. Obviously, social platforms like Facebook very, very often reward division. You know, anger, the creation of anger and rage on the part of users is very, very good for business. It keeps you stuck to your screen longer. So we have all kinds of mechanisms to make people angry. And we don't have a lot of mechanisms that cool people down. It's not a healthy or coherent time in American political life. Listen, I know how busy you are, uh, particularly right now when time and space seem to have entirely disappeared, when the world has become flat. So I really take it as a token of friendship that you have taken the time to sit down um, to speak to us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's good Thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Melanie Marin-Pell, the Managing Director of AJC's Department of Regional Offices. Melanie, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thanks, Sefi. This Shabbat, I'll be reflecting on my city's racial history and grappling with how and what to explain to my six-year-old son. We live in Louisville, Kentucky. And Louisville, like Minneapolis, as you've probably seen, has been in the news quite a bit over the last few weeks because of the killing of Brianna Taylor by police. Brianna was just shy of 27 years old. She was an EMT. And the police were serving a warrant in a drug case, and they were looking for two men who, it turns out, were actually in police custody already. Brianna was in bed sleeping, and her door was broken down with a battering ram. Her boyfriend, thinking they were being robbed, fired at the intruders, or what he thought were intruders. He apparently had a properly licensed weapon, and police opened fire. Uh, Brianna was shot eight times and died of her injuries, and she had done nothing wrong, and she should still be alive. And adding to the pain and anger in Louisville is that another African-American man, David McAtee, was shot and killed by National Guardsmen just a few days later during one of the ensuing protests. The moments that led up to his killing are still a little bit murky and there's some dispute, but what is clear is that he was a beloved son, he was a local restaurant owner, and he was a community fixture, and like Brianna, he should also still be alive. So the city where I was born, the city that I love, the city that I returned to after being away for years, uh, the city that prides itself on compassion is really hurting. And Kentucky has always been deeply divided. It's a border state. It was a border state in the Civil War. There were slaveholders in the southern, more rural parts of the state who were deeply aligned with the Confederacy. And then the northern part of the state had strong alignment with the Union. And nonetheless, after the war, a lot of the ex-Confederate leaders maintained positions of real prominence in many of Kentucky's major cities, including Louisville. 
And while Louisville became more diverse and certainly the urban center of Kentucky, the city really has always been quite segregated, sadly, uh, by design and by the intent of many of the white leaders. So we look at the way the highways were planned, where the bus lines ended, where the history of redlining here, there are still food deserts and a lack of real meaningful investment in the black majority west end of Louisville. So we see the legacy still today. And in fact, in my lifetime, um, in 1985, so not that long ago, a Louisville police officer who was also a grand wizard in the KKK was fired after a black couple's home was set on fire by the Klan. And the lawyers really wanted to make clear that there was this mingling of police and the Klan. And it came to light that he was using police computers to recruit and communicate for the Klan. And according to one of his fellow officers, they would regularly meet at his house wearing their Klan robes. Anyway, he was fired, but there were 20 plus other publicly known KKK police officers who were not fired. And at least one went on to lead one of Louisville's small city police forces. So this is a real legacy in Louisville. And it all contributes to this pent up anger and pain and trauma that really erupted in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So my son, again, who is six, he's seen Breonna's face all over the news and on signs. There is a big mural of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor that a local artist painted on the side of a building downtown. And he's seen the images of these protests around the country and has seen even the small group of, there are about 50 protesters next to the big shopping center in our largely white upper middle class suburb. And we honk and wave and clap and he wanted to know why. And I said, well, they're protesting something bad that happened and we agree with them. And now I'm working through how to explain what protest means to a six-year-old. You know, he protests going to bed. He protests eating his vegetables. But anyway, he understands fairness. So we're talking a lot about what fairness is, what feels unfair, and how when something is unfair, what can you do about it? And one way is for people to come together. And they make signs and they make noise because one of the things about protest is that you want to be heard and we're louder when there are lots of us making our voices heard together. So... You know, I'm thinking a lot about this on Shabbat. I want him to grow up feeling proud to live in Kentucky, this beautiful bluegrass state, proud to live in Louisville, this city of compassion, full of creativity and innovation and diversity. And I want him to be a proud member of Louisville's Jewish community, which is small but highly affiliated and really engaged in civic life. And I also want him to understand the history here and know that the life we enjoy is not so easily found for others. And the last thing I'll share is that last Sunday, we went for our first play date in months. We took a socially distant hike through a state park with one of my son's really good friends and his friend's family, and they happened to be African-American. And we had a really good time. It was really nice to be together. And in many ways, it was so unremarkable. And I want that for my son. I want it to be unremarkable to have a diverse group of friends who live in different parts of town. And so on Shabbat, we'll be talking about both the remarkable and the unremarkable in language and in stories that are appropriate for a six-year-old. And we'll be talking about what we love about Louisville and also talking about what we can do to help make Louisville better. And that's it. That's what we'll be talking about. That was incredibly beautiful. Melanie, I am so glad that you are struggling with how to tackle these difficult topics with your six-year-old. I am having the same struggles with my five-year-old, soon to be six, during this lockdown period, he's learned how to read, which has made this even more difficult. I found him stooped over the front page of the New York Times one morning, and naturally that has led to questions. As he peeled cucumbers over the kitchen sink the other day, my son asked, Mom, how do black people become black? And why do some people mistreat black people? 
And how do you know what happened 400 years ago, Mom? Were you there? And this has led to conversations about race, slavery, civil rights, equality, the importance of studying history. It also has led to conversations about being Jewish. And people hate for a variety of ridiculous reasons, I've told him. Skin color, religion, accents. He is completely flummoxed by this and, frankly, a little scared. And I can't blame him. I am, too. First, an evil virus cuts him off from friends and extended family. We're not doing socially distant playdates yet, Melanie. But now this news. Our world is full of haters. But I remind him, this is why I do what I do. Journalists try to educate and inform. And now I work for a group that educates and informs with a goal of fighting hate and injustice. But we don't do it alone. We seek and find allies in that fight whether they're world leaders who support Israel because they believe people have a right to self-determination without constant threat, Muslims whose theology has been hijacked and twisted by terrorists to justify anti-Semitism and violence, and African-Americans whose contributions to this democracy are immeasurable, yet they still continue to fight for equality and fair treatment. Now, I had just started working for AJC last year when we began preparing for what was my first global forum. I didn't quite grasp how monumental this event was until I spoke with Janicia Perlmutter-Kamen, a former president of AJC New Jersey. She talked about taking her older daughter to her first global forum years ago and how the opening session featured a formative conversation between former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and AJC CEO David Harris. Now, I didn't quite get it then, but I do now. While a global forum in Berlin would have been amazing and historic and memorable, just as David shared with you, Sefi, earlier in this episode, a small part of me is glad that I don't have to fly to Berlin and leave my son behind, especially right now. Instead, I can log on next week with my son beside me and introduce him to what I do and to our very powerful allies, Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis of Greece, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany and Dr. Muhammad Al-Isa of the Muslim World League. I want my son to hear different languages, see different faces, but hear a consistent message that the world is also full of people who stand together with us in our pursuit of justice and integrity and love. Now, will this inspire more questions? I hope so. And that's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, what will you be talking about? This month is the 99th anniversary of the Black Wall Street Massacre. I actually hadn't known about the Black Wall Street Massacre until this year, when I learned about it from the HBO TV show Watchmen, of all places. In 1921, one of the wealthiest black areas in the whole country was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a place called Greenwood. Oklahoma wasn't a great place for black people to live, but despite segregation, racism, and the KKK, the black professionals and entrepreneurs of Greenwood had built up a prosperous community. So prosperous, in fact, that it was nicknamed the Negro Wall Street at the time, or today, Black Wall Street. Then, in a story that is repeated endlessly throughout the history of racism and racial violence, a black teenager was accused of assaulting a white teenager. 19-year-old Dick Rowland was taken into custody by the authorities and a lynch mob gathered outside the courthouse. As the mob swelled to 2,000 white people, the black community organized and armed themselves, determined to protect Roland. The white mob, alarmed at the sight of armed black people, fired into the black crowd and the massacre had begun. 
with guns and cars and even airplanes. The white mob set about murdering and destroying property. There is no precise death toll, but estimates suggest that upwards of 200 black people may have been killed. And Black Wall Street, that bastion of black business, was destroyed. 10,000 black people were made homeless. Millions of dollars of black property was destroyed. A prosperous black community ruined overnight. This is what we're talking about when we talk about systemic racism. For well over a hundred years, the system stood adamantly in the way of black people who tried to live the American dream. Any time some small community was able to break through and lift itself up, the lynch mob was there to push it back down. And that's why today, the average net worth of a white family in America at $171,000 is 10 times greater than the average net worth of a black family, just $17,000. That's why educating children about this history, like you're doing, Melanie and Manya, is so important. And that's why it's so important that we talk about it at our Shabbat tables. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.